I listen to a lot of audio books when I'm driving. And one of the things I've noticed is that I really appreciate the, there's little um, back and forward buttons. So you can rewind 30 seconds if you tap it. And I find myself doing that all the time because while I'm driving and trying to lock in and listening to these audio books and keep the characters straight in my head as they're developed and so forth, I realized that I've been listening for five minutes and I was, my mind was somewhere else. I wasn't paying attention. So I'm always hitting that back button to go back and listen carefully. It, listening is an, uh, an active uh, uh, activity. Uh, and so I'll encourage you during this message to lock in with me. It's tempting to let our minds go. Uh, we all have lots of uh, things to think about. But we're trying to get to really one uh, crystallized moment in this passage. And I, I do believe that it's uh, a blessing when we let it sit in the context in which it comes. Uh, we've been walking through Mark's gospel for the past few weeks and really just staying in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, this Sunday, the, the lectionary leaps forward to chapter 8. So uh, to give us some context as to what we hear in our reading from this morning, um, I want to do just a quick skim review of the, uh, the preceding seven chapters. Um, so we, we watched as Jesus called uh, some fishermen and tax collectors to be his, his disciples in the first chapter, cast out some evil spirits during a worship service. In chapter 2, Jesus heals a paralyzed man and was accused of sharing table fellowship with sinners. This guy eats with tax collectors and sinners is an accusation that will kind of stick and be reiterated uh, along the way. Chapter 3, Jesus again heals somebody on the Sabbath, calls more disciples to follow, is accused of being crazy and out of his mind, even by members of his own family. Chapter 4, Jesus falls asleep in the stern of, a, of the boat with the disciples during a, a raging storm that is so violent they're, they're all sure that they're going to die until Jesus awakes and calms the storm. Chapter 5, Jesus heals another man possessed by unclean spirits. He raises a young girl from the dead, physically taking her by the hand and heals a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Again, touching this woman. Chapter 6, Jesus returns to his hometown where he says, you know, the one place where a prophet is without honor is in his hometown among his own people. And then he feeds thousands with a little bread and fish and also uh, walks on water. You remember? Uh, chapter 7, Jesus meets a determined Syrophoenician woman who will not be dismissed simply because she is not Jewish. And she tells Jesus that even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus marvels at her faith. He also does a kind of 
gross miracle in chapter 7 where he sticks his fingers in a guy's ear and uses spit somehow to uh, heal him. Uh, And now we arrive to chapter 8, which begins with Jesus feeding another group, numbering into the thousands, heals a a blind man, uh, giving him sight in more ways than one. And in this quick skim across those seven chapters, I honestly skipped really a lot of amazing stuff uh, leading up to this pivotal moment. When Jesus asks a question of his disciples that echoes across time, but at least this gives us some context into which this question is offered and considered by the disciples, Mark tells us that Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. And because we know the fullness of the story, we know what awaits him there. They're now moving through the villages of uh, Caesarea, Philippi, up and around that region. And Jesus is chatting with his disciples and he's, and he's saying, hey, who, you know, as you mingle in the crowds, who do people say that I am out there? And the disciples seem eager to report that some are saying you are the return of of John the Baptist, you know, the rock star prophet that appeared out in the wilderness declaring a baptism of repentance. And others are saying you are the great prophet Elijah returned. And then Jesus asks, and here comes the moment, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And over the years in my imagination, uh, imagination I've, 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 I've imagined a long, awkward silence here with the disciples kind of looking down and kicking at the dirt trail, hoping not to be chosen to give an answer to this particular question. But I suppose it's also possible that, that they were all just itching to give it. Uh, but Peter's the one who gets it out first, if that's the case. He just blurts it out, you are the Messiah. Peter doesn't say, some people are saying you are the Messiah. And he doesn't ask, are you the Messiah? Peter just says it out loud, you are the Messiah. And I can just imagine the other disciples looking at Peter like, I I can't believe this guy. I mean, he's on such a hair trigger. I mean, I was thinking it. Uh, But Peter says it out loud. And Jesus replies, yeah. But don't, don't tell anybody. <laughs> don't tell anybody. I mean, what? The disciples have to be thinking, Peter got it right, you are the Messiah, and we're just supposed to go on with our day. Not say a word, not, you know, for instance, brag that we are disciples, we are part of the inner circle of the actual Messiah. Don't say anything. And what happens next is a pivotal moment in Mark's Gospel. So we will take these next five verses just one at a time and walk through. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed 
and after three days rise again. Being the Messiah will not look like triumph and success. Quite the opposite. It will involve suffering and rejection by political leaders, worship leaders, Bible scholars, elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the laws, the way Mark puts it. Everyone who is anyone. And this begs the question, should the church of Christ be preoccupied with notions of success, however they might be defined or understood? For at least the last couple of generations, the church seemed to consider that Booming worship attendance and membership roles were signs of success to be sought after, celebrated. There's a push among the church in certain quarters today to align with the nation state in something you might hear called Christian nationalism or often white Christian nationalism. If we, if we are so... Uh, intertwined with the, the state apparatus, then we will be successful, powerful, prominent, influential. That's what we want. How do we measure success in the church? He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Peter decides to take Jesus away from the others, maybe over some behind some trees, and to let them know, listen, I've got this. I'm clearly the leader of our little band of 12, Jesus, and we aren't having it, this talk of failure. In Peter's mind, things have been going so well. All the incredible events of these first seven chapters, massive crowds everywhere they go, the numbers are up, things are looking great. We will not stand by Jesus and let our Messiah suffer. Don't worry, Peter seems to be thinking. I will make sure that our guys are armed and dangerous. I will take the ear of a Roman guard if I have to, if they start coming for you, Jesus. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples... He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. It is as if Jesus wanted them all to feel the sting of this response. He's speaking to Peter, but he's looking at the disciples, Mark says. He was looking, at straight, looking straight at all of them when he rebukes Peter. This is not about running a successful campaign or business or religion for that matter. Jesus is saying, I'm not here to make you all feel better about yourselves. I'm here to save you from yourselves. And, and it's going to cost me dearly. It will cost me everything. When Jesus came up out of the waters of baptism in the Gospel reading from last Sunday, the Jordan River, Satan was there with pretty much the same temptation. Come on, Jesus. It doesn't have to be so hard. 
You don't have to walk that lonely road to the cross. Just bow to me. I'll put you in charge of all the kingdoms of the world. Imagine what a just and fair and equitable, compassionate leader you would be. Get lost, Jesus said back then and again here. When Peter offered an easier way, Jesus knew right away where this was coming from. Get behind me, Satan. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow. Here's how it's going to be, Jesus says to everyone. The crowd, the disciples, and now he's talking to you and I anyone who would be followers. If you want to be my followers, then you need to deny yourself and pick up your cross and then follow. And we might wonder what that means exactly, to pick up a cross and and follow. And I, I suppose the best way for us to understand what Jesus means by picking up a cross is to follow him on his way to his cross. And that's what we've been doing and what we'll continue to do through this season of Lent. We will continue to notice who Jesus reaches out to along the way, the kind of people he touches and eats dinner with and sticks his fingers in their ears and takes their hand to raise them from the dead. Reaching out to those people gets Jesus nothing but trouble. Who do you say that I am? For one shining moment, Simon Peter got the answer correct, but he didn't realize at the time what being the Messiah will mean for Jesus. That realization would come later on a hill outside of Jerusalem. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, we'll save it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls someone, he calls them, come and die. You rarely see this slogan out on church signs. There is a scene that sticks with me in the final episode of the first season of the television series, which was called The Wire. It's one of the best and most realistic shows ever produced, dealing with the dynamics of gangs and the drug trade, filmed on the inner city streets of Baltimore. In this final episode of the first season, there's five seasons of The Wire, In this final episode, Detective Kima Greggs was recovering in the hospital after having been shot during an undercover operation. And there were two assailants, and she was also able to positively identify. She saw one of them in the darkness of this night when she was out there undercover. She was able to identify one as as an eyewitness to help convict that one for the crime. The other assailant also left behind hair and fingerprint evidence, and they heard him on the recording. She was wearing a wire. 
Uh, they knew who it was. They knew he was there. But Detective Greggs never got a clear look at him in the darkness of this second one during the attack. And her well-meaning detective colleague had brought a, a photo array over to the hospital to her. And he was tapping on the picture of the one uh, that they knew to have been the second assailant and telling Detective Greggs that it would play much easier if she could positively identify both of her shooters while he tapped on the picture of the one he wanted her to say out loud. But unwilling to lie in her weakened condition, Detective Greggs just shook her head and in a shaky voice she said, Sometimes things just got to play hard. If God's grace is going to bring life out of death and swallow whole all the violence and selfishness this world can muster, if this grace can reach the darkest corners, and lift people out of their shame and hopelessness. If this grace is to wash over you, well, sometimes things got to play hard. So we will follow Jesus to the cross, and we will not look away. And on the third day, we will understand why. So we've heard the gospel yet again. Uh, we follow along and, and Jesus turns to us and asks, who do you say that I am? And uh, that answer will, will evolve as we grow throughout our lives. Uh, and for the disciples, even the one who got the correct answer on that day, uh, their, their place in the kingdom of heaven is not secured by their own answer. They will prove that as we continue to follow uh, when they scatter in fear and Peter denies that he even knows Jesus, the very Peter who blurted out, you are the Messiah, will deny knowing him before the rooster crows. But it is what Christ will accomplish on the cross on their behalf and ours that gives us peace and allows us to leave here this morning having been blessed and forgiven. And so we go with that peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.